Part three of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Epistomalus. Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, compiled by Merle Johnson. Chapter two The Ghost of Captain Brand. It is not so easy to tell why discredit should be cast upon a man because of something that his grandfather may have done amiss, but the world, which is never over-nice in its discrimination as to where to lay the blame, is often pleased to make the innocent suffer in the place of the guilty. Barnaby True was a good, honest, biddable lad, as boys go, but yet he was not ever allowed altogether to forget that his grandfather had been that very famous pirate, Captain William Brand, who, after so many marvelous adventures, if one may believe the catchpenny stories and ballads that were written about him, was murdered in Jamaica by Captain John Malio, the commander of his own consort, the Adventure Galley. It has never been denied that ever I heard that up to the time of Captain Brand's being commissioned against the South Sea Pirates, he had always been esteemed as honest, reputable a sea captain as could be. When he started out upon that adventure it was with a ship, the Royal Sovereign, fitted out by some of the most decent merchants of New York. The Governor himself had subscribed to the adventure, and had himself signed Captain Brand's commission. So if the unfortunate man went astray, he must have had great temptation to do so, many others behaving no better when the opportunity offered in those far-away seas where so many rich purchases might easily be taken and no one the wiser. To be sure, those stories and ballads made our captain to be a most wicked, profane wretch. And if he were, why, God knows he suffered and paid for it, for he laid his bones in Jamaica, and never saw his home or his wife and daughter again after he had sailed away on the royal sovereign on that long misfortunate voyage, leaving them in New York to the care of strangers. At the time when he met his fate in Port Royal Harbor, he had obtained two vessels under his command, the royal sovereign, which was the boat fitted out for him in New York, and the adventure galley, which he was said to have taken somewhere in the South Seas. With these he lay in those waters of Jamaica for over a month after his return from the coasts of Africa, waiting for news from home, which, when it came, was of the very blackest. For the colonial authorities were at that time stirred up very hot against him to take him and hang him for a pirate, so as to clear their own skirts for having to do with such a fellow. So maybe it seemed better to our captain to hide his ill-gotten treasure there in those far-away parts, and afterward to try and bargain with it for his life when he should reach New York, rather than to sail straight for the Americas with what he had earned by his piracies, and so risk losing life and money both. However that might be, the story was that Captain Brand and his gunner, and Captain Malio of the Adventure, and the sailing-master of the adventure, all went ashore together with a chest of money, no one of them choosing to trust the other three in so nice an affair, and buried the treasure somewhere on the beach of Port Royal Harbor. The story then has it that they fell a-quarreling about a future division of the money, and that, as a wind-up to the affair, Captain Malio shot Captain Brand through the head, while the sailing-master of the adventure served the gunner of the royal sovereign after the same fashion through the body, 
and that the murderers then went away, leaving the two stretched out in their own blood on the sand and the staring sun, with no one to know where the money was hid but they two who had served their comrades so. It is a mighty great pity that anyone should have a grandfather who ended his days in such a sort as this, but it was no fault of Barnaby True's, nor could he have done anything to prevent it, seeing that he was not even born into the world at the time that his grandfather turned pirate, and was only one year old when he so met his tragical end. Nevertheless, the boys with whom he went to school never tired of calling him pirate, and would sometimes sing for his benefit that famous catchpenny song beginning thus. Oh, my name was Captain Brand, a sailing and a sailing. Oh, my name was Captain Brand, a sailing free. Oh, my name was Captain Brand, and I sinned by sea and land, for I broke God's just command, a sailing free. Twas a vile thing to sing at the grandson of so misfortunate a man, and oftentimes little Barnaby True would double up his fists and would fight his tormentors at great odds, and would sometimes go back home with a bloody nose to have his poor mother cry over him and grieve for him. Not that his days were all of teasing and torment, neither, for if his comrades did treat him so, why, then there were other times when he and they were as great friends as could be, and would go swimming together where there was a bit of sandy strand along the East River above Fort George, and that in the most amicable fashion. Or maybe the very next day, after he had fought so with his fellows, he would go a-rambling with them up the Bowery Road, perhaps to help them steal cherries from some old Dutch farmer, forgetting in such adventure what a thief his own grandfather had been. Well, when Barnaby True was between sixteen and seventeen years old, he was taken into employment in the counting-house of Mr. Roger Hartwright, the well-known West India merchant, and Barnaby's own stepfather. It was the kindness of this good man that not only found a place for Barnaby in the counting-house, but advanced him so fast that against our hero was twenty-one years old, he had made four voyages as supercargo to the West Indies in Mr. Hartwright's ship, the Belle Helen, and soon after he was twenty-one undertook a fifth. Nor was it in any such subordinate position as mere supercargo that he acted, but rather as the confidential agent of Mr. Hartwright, who, having no children of his own, was very jealous to advance our hero into a position of trust and responsibility in the counting-house, as though he were indeed a son, so that even the captain of the ship had scarcely more consideration aboard than he, young as he was in years. As for the agents and correspondents of Mr. Hartwright throughout these parts, they also, knowing how the good man had adopted his interests, were very polite and obliging to Master Barnaby, especially, be it mentioned, Mr. Ambrose Greenfield of Kingston, Jamaica, who, upon the occasions of his visits to those parts, did all that he could to make Barnaby's stay in that town agreeable and pleasant to him. So much for the history of our hero to the time of the beginning of this story, without which you shall hardly be able to understand the purport of those most extraordinary adventures that befell him shortly after he came of age, nor the logic of their consequence after they had occurred. For it was during his fifth voyage to the West Indies that the first of those extraordinary adventures happened of which I shall have presently to tell. At that time he had been in Kingston for the best part of four weeks, lodging at the house of a very decent, respectable widow, by name Mrs. Ann Bowles, who, 
with three pleasant and agreeable daughters, kept a very clean and well-served lodging-house in the outskirts of the town. One morning, as our hero sat sipping his coffee, clad only in loose cotton drawers, a shirt and a jacket, and with slippers upon his feet, as is the custom in that country, where everyone endeavors to keep as cool as may be, while he sat thus sipping his coffee, Miss Eliza, the youngest of the three daughters, came and gave him a note, which, she said, a stranger had just handed in at the door, going away again without waiting for a reply. You may judge of Barnaby's surprise when he opened the note and read as follows. Mr. Barnaby True Sir, though you don't know me, I know you, and I tell you this, if you will be at Pratt's Ordinary on Harbor Street on Friday next at eight o'clock of the evening, and will accompany the man who shall say to you, The Royal Sovereign is come in, you shall learn something the most to your advantage that ever befell you. Sir, keep this note, and show it to him who shall address these words to you, so to certify that you are the man he seeks. Such was the wording of the note, which was without address, and without any superscription whatever. The first emotion that stirred Barnaby was one of extreme and profound amazement. Then the thought came into his mind that some witty fellow, of whom he knew a good many in that town, and wild, waggish pranks they were, was attempting to play off some smart jest upon him. But all that Miss Eliza could tell him when he questioned her concerning the messenger was that the bearer of the note was a tall, stout man, with a red neckerchief around his neck and copper buckles to his shoes, and that he had the appearance of a sailor-man, having a great big cue hanging down his back. But, Lord, what was such a description as that in a busy seaport town, full of scores of men to fit such a likeness? Accordingly, our hero put away the note into his wallet, determining to show it to his good friend Mr. Greenfield that evening, and to ask his advice upon it. So he did show it, and that gentleman's opinion was the same as his, that some wag was minded to play off a hoax upon him, and that the matter of the letter was all nothing but smoke. Nevertheless, though Barnaby was thus confirmed in his opinion as to the nature of the communication he had received, he yet determined in his own mind that he would see the business through to the end, and would be at Pratt's ordinary, as the note demanded, upon the day and at the time specified therein. Pratt's ordinary was at that time a very fine and well-known place of its sort, with good tobacco and the best rum that ever I tasted, and had a garden behind it that, sloping down to the harbor front, was planted pretty thick with palms and ferns, grouped into clusters with flowers and plants. Here were a number of little tables, some in little grottoes, like our Vauxhall in New York, and with red and blue and white paper lanterns hung among the foliage, whither gentlemen and ladies used sometimes to go of an evening to sit and drink lime juice and sugar and water, and sometimes a taste of something stronger, and to look out across the water at the shipping in the cool of the night. Thither, accordingly, our hero went, a little before the time appointed in the note, and passing directly through the ordinary and the garden beyond, chose a table at the lower end of the garden, and close to the water's edge, where he would not be easily seen by any one coming into the place. Then, ordering some rum and water and a pipe of tobacco, he composed himself to watch for the appearance of those witty fellows whom he suspected would presently come thither to see the end of their prank and to enjoy his confusion. 
The spot was pleasant enough, for the land breeze blowing strong and full set the leaves of the palm tree above his head to rattling and clattering continually against the sky, where, the moon then being about full, they shone every now and then like blades of steel. The waves also were splashing up against the little landing-place at the foot of the garden, sounding very cool in the night, and sparkling all over the harbor where the moon caught the edges of the water. A great many vessels were lying at anchor in their ridings, with the dark, prodigious form of a man-of-war looming up above them in the moonlight. There our hero sat for the best part of an hour, smoking his pipe of tobacco and sipping his grog, and seeing not so much as a single thing that might concern the note he had received. It was not far from half an hour after the time appointed in the note, when a rowboat came suddenly out of the night, and pulled up to the landing-place at the foot of the garden above mentioned, and three or four men came ashore in the darkness. Without saying a word among themselves, they chose a nearby table, and, sitting down, ordered rum and water, and began drinking their grog in silence. They might have sat there about five minutes, when, by and by, Barnaby True became aware that they were observing him very curiously, and then almost immediately one, who was plainly the leader of the party, called out to him, "'How now, Miss Bate? Won't you come and drink a dram of rum with us?' "'Why, no,' says Barnaby, answering very civilly. "'I have drunk enough already, and more would only heat my blood.' "'All the same.' quoth the stranger. I think you will come and drink with us, for, unless I am mistook, you are Mr. Barnaby True, and I am come here to tell you that the royal sovereign is come in. Now I may honestly say that Barnaby True was never more struck aback in all his life than he was at hearing these words uttered in so unexpected a manner. He had been looking to hear them under such different circumstances that, now that his ears heard them addressed to him, and that so seriously by a perfect stranger, who, with others, had thus mysteriously come ashore out of the darkness, he could scarce believe that his ears heard aright. His heart suddenly began beating at a tremendous rate, and had he been an older and wiser man, I do believe he would have declined the adventure, instead of leaping blindly, as he did, into that of which he could see neither the beginning nor the ending. But being barely one and twenty years of age, and having an adventurous disposition that would have carried him into almost anything that possessed a smack of uncertainty or danger about it, he contrived to say, in a pretty easy tone, though God knows how it was put on for the occasion, "'Well, then, if that be so, and if the royal sovereign is indeed come in, why, I'll join you, since you are so kind as to ask me.' And therewith he went across to the other table carrying his pipe with him, and sat down and began smoking, with all the appearance of ease he could assume upon the occasion. "'Well, Mr. Barnaby True,' said the man who had before addressed him, so soon as Barnaby had settled himself, speaking in a low tone of voice, so there would be no danger of any others hearing the words, "'Well, Mr. Barnaby True, for I shall call you by your name, to show you that, though I know you, you don't know me.' I am glad to see that you are man enough to enter thus into an affair, though you can't see to the bottom of it. For it shows me that you are a man of metal, and are deserving of the fortune that is to befall you to-night. Nevertheless, first of all, 
I am bid to say that you must show me a piece of paper that you have about you before we go a step farther. Very well, said Barnaby. I have it here safe and sound, and see it you shall. And thereupon, and without more ado, he fetched out his wallet, opened it, and handed his interlocutor the mysterious note he had received the day or two before, whereupon the other, drawing to him the candle burning there for the convenience of those who would smoke tobacco, began immediately reading it. This gave Barnaby True a moment or two to look at him. He was a tall, stout man with a red handkerchief tied around his neck, and with copper buckles on his shoes, so that Barnaby True could not but wonder whether he was not the very same man who had given the note to Miss Eliza Bowles at the door of his lodging-house. "'Tis all right and straight as it should be,' the other said, after he had so glanced his eyes over the note. "'And now that the paper is read,' suiting his action to his words, "'I'll just burn it for safety's sake.' And so he did, twisting it up and setting it to the flame of the candle. "'And now,' he said, continuing his address, "'I'll tell you what I am here for. "'I was sent to ask you if you're man enough "'to take your life in your own hands "'and to go with me in that boat down there. "'Say yes, and we'll start away without wasting more time, "'for the devil is ashore here at Jamaica, "'though you don't know what that means. "'And if he gets ahead of us, why, "'then we may whistle for what we are after.' Say no, and I go away again, and I promise you you shall never be troubled again in this sort. So now speak up plain, young gentleman, and tell us what is your mind in this business, and whether you will adventure any further or not. If our hero hesitated, it was not for long. I cannot say that his courage did not waver for a moment, but if it did, it was, I say, not for long. And when he spoke up, it was with a voice as steady as could be. "'To be sure, I'm man enough to go with you,' he said. "'And if you mean me any harm, I can look out for myself. And if I can't, why, here is something can look out for me.' And therewith he lifted up the flap of his coat-pocket and showed the butt of a pistol he had fetched with him when he had set out from his lodging-house that evening. At this the other burst out a-laughing. <laughs> "'Come,' says he. You are indeed of right metal, and I like your spirit. All the same, no one in all the world means you less ill than I. And so, if you have to use that barker, t'will not be upon us who are your friends, but only upon one who is more wicked than the devil himself. So come, and let us get away. Thereupon he and the others, who had not spoken a single word for all this time, rose from the table, and he, having paid the scores of all, they all went down together to the boat that still lay at the landing-place at the bottom of the garden. Thus coming to it, our hero could see that it was a large yawl-boat, manned with half a score of black men for rowers, and there were two lanterns in the stern sheets, and three or four iron shovels. The man who had conducted the conversation with Barnaby True for all this time, and who was, as has been said, plainly the captain of the party, stepped immediately down into the boat. Our hero followed, and the others followed after him, and instantly they were seated, the boat was shoved off, and the black men began pulling straight out into the harbor, and so, at some distance away, around under the stern of the man-of-war. Not a word was spoken after they had thus left the shore, 
and presently they might all have been ghosts for the silence of the party. Barnaby True was too full of his own thoughts to talk, and serious enough thoughts they were by this time, with crimps to trepan a man at every turn, and press-gangs to carry a man off so that he might never be heard of again. As for the others, they did not seem to choose to say anything, now that they had him fairly embarked upon their enterprise. And so the crew pulled on in perfect silence for the best part of an hour, the leader of the expedition directing the course of the boat straight across the harbor, as though toward the mouth of the Rio Cobra River. Indeed, this was their destination, as Barnaby could after a while see, by the low point of land with a great long row of coconut palms upon it, the appearance of which he knew very well, which by and by began to loom up out of the milky dimness of the moonlight. As they approached the river they found the tide was running strong out of it, so that some distance away from the stream it gurgled and rippled alongside the boat as the crew of black men pulled strongly against it. Thus they came up under what was either a point of land or an islet covered with a thick growth of mangrove trees. But still no one spoke a single word as to their destination, or what was the business they had in hand. The night, now that they were close to the shore, was loud with the noise of running tide-water, and the air was heavy with the smell of mud and marsh, and over all the whiteness of the moonlight, with a few stars pricking out here and there in the sky, and all so strange and silent and mysterious that Barnaby could not divest himself of the feeling that it was all a dream. So the rowers, bending to the oars, the boat came slowly around from under the clump of mangrove bushes and out into the open water again. Instantly it did so, the leader of the expedition called out in a sharp voice, and the black men instantly lay on their oars. Almost at the same instant Barnaby True became aware that there was another boat coming down the river toward where they lay, now drifting with the strong tide out into the harbor again, and he knew that it was because of the approach of that boat that the other had called upon his men to cease rowing. The other boat, as well as he could see in the distance, was full of men, some of whom appeared to be armed, for even in the dusk of the darkness the shine of the moonlight glimmered sharply now and then on the barrels of muskets or pistols, and in the silence that followed after their own rowing had ceased, Barnaby True could hear the chug-chug of the oars sounding louder and louder through the watery stillness of the night as the boat drew nearer and nearer. But he knew nothing of what it all meant, nor whether these others were friends or enemies, or what was to happen next. The oarsmen of the approaching boat did not for a moment cease their rowing, not till they had come pretty close to Barnaby and his companions. Then a man who sat in the stern ordered them to cease rowing, and as they lay on their oars he stood up. As they passed by, Barnaby True could see him very plain, the moonlight shining full upon him, a large, stout gentleman with a round red face and clad in a fine laced coat of red cloth. Amidship of the boat was a box or chest about the bigness of a middle-sized travelling trunk, but covered all over with cakes of sand and dirt. In the act of passing, the gentleman, still standing, pointed at it with an elegant gold-headed cane which he held in his hand. "'Ah, oh, you come after this, Abraham, darling,' says he and thereat his countenance broke into as evil, malignant a grin as ever Barnaby True saw in all of his life. 
The other did not immediately reply so much as a single word, but sat as still as any stone. Then, at last, the other boat having gone by, he suddenly appeared to regain his wits, for he bawled out after it, "'Very well, Jack Malio, very well, Jack Malio, you've got ahead of us this time again, but next time is the third, and then it shall be our turn, even if William Brand must come back from hell to settle with you.' This he shouted out as the other boat passed farther and farther away, but to it my fine gentleman made no reply except to burst out into a great roaring fit of laughter. There was another man among the armed men in the stern of the passing boat, a villainous lean man with lantern jaws, and the top of his head as bald as the palm of my hand. As the boat went away into the night with the tide and the headway the oars had given it, he grinned so that the moonlight shone white on his big teeth. Then, flourishing a great big pistol, he said, and Barnaby could hear every word he spoke, "'Do but give me the word, your honour, and I'll put another bullet through the son of a sea-cook.' But the gentleman said some words to forbid him, and therewith the boat was gone away into the night, and presently Barnaby could hear that the men at the oars had begun rowing again, leaving them lying there, without a single word being said for a long time. By and by one of those in Barnaby's boat spoke up. "'Where shall you go now?' he said. At this the leader of the expedition appeared suddenly to come back to himself, and to find his voice again. "'Go!' he roared out. "'Go to the devil! Go! Go where you choose! Go! Go back again! That's where we'll go!' and therewith he fell a-cursing and swearing until he foamed at the lips, as though he had gone clean crazy, while the black men began rowing back across the harbor as fast as ever they could lay oars into the water. They put Barnaby True ashore below the old custom-house, but so bewildered and shaken was he by all that had happened, and by what he had seen, and by the names that he heard spoken, that he was scarcely conscious of any of the familiar things among which he found himself thus standing. And so he walked up the moonlit street toward his lodging like one drunk or bewildered. For John Malio was the name of the captain of the adventure galley, he who had shot Barnaby's own grandfather, and Abraham Dawling was the name of the gunner of the royal sovereign, who had been shot at the same time with the pirate captain, and who, with him, had been left stretched out in the staring sun by the murderers. The whole business had occupied hardly two hours, but it was as though that time was no part of Barnaby's life, but all a part of some other life, so dark and strange and mysterious that it in no wise belonged to him. As for that box covered all over with mud, he could only guess at that time what it contained, and what the finding of it signified. But of this our hero said nothing to anyone nor did he tell a single living soul what he had seen that night, but nursed it in his own mind, where it lay so big for a while that he could think of little or nothing else for days after. Mr. Greenfield, Mr. Hartwright's correspondent and agent in these parts, lived in a fine brick house just out of the town, on the Mona Road, his family consisting of a wife and two daughters, brisk, lively young ladies with black hair and eyes, and very fine bright teeth that shone whenever they laughed, and with a plenty to say for themselves. Thither Barnaby True was often asked to a family dinner, 
and indeed it was a pleasant home to visit, and to sit upon the veranda and smoke a cigarro with the good old gentleman and look out toward the mountains, while the young ladies laughed and talked, or played upon the guitar and sang. And oftentimes so, it was strongly upon Barnaby's mind to speak to the good gentleman and tell him what he had beheld that night out in the harbor, but always he would think better of it and hold his peace, falling to thinking and smoking away upon his cigarro at a great rate. A day or two before the Bell Helen sailed from Kingston, Mr. Greenfield stopped Barnaby True as he was going through the office to bid him come to dinner that night, for there within the tropics they breakfast at eleven o'clock and take dinner in the cool of the evening because of the heat, and not at midday, as we do in more temperate latitudes. "'I would have you meet,' says Mr. Greenfield, your chief passenger for New York, and his granddaughter, for whom the state cabin and the two state rooms are to be fitted as here ordered, showing a letter. Sir John Malio and Miss Marjorie Malio. Did you ever hear tell of Captain Jack Malio, Master Barnaby? Now I do believe that Mr. Greenfield had no notion at all that old Captain Brand was Barnaby True's own grandfather, and Captain John Malio his murderer but when he so thrust at him the name of that man, what with that in itself and the late adventure through which he himself had just passed, and with his brooding upon it until it was so prodigiously big in his mind, it was like hitting him a blow to so fling the questions at him. Nevertheless, he was able to reply, with a pretty straight face, that he had heard of Captain Malio and who he was. "'Well,' says Mr. Greenfield, if Jack Malio was a desperate pirate and a wild, reckless blade twenty years ago, why, he is Sir John Malio now, and the owner of a fine estate in Devonshire. Well, Master Barnaby, when one is a baronet and come into the inheritance of a fine estate, though I do hear it is vastly cumbered with debts, the world will wink its eye so much that he may have done twenty years ago. I do hear say, though, that his own kin still turned the cold shoulder to him. To this address Barnaby answered nothing, but sat smoking away at his cigarro at a great rate. And so that night Barnaby True came face to face for the first time with the man who murdered his own grandfather, the greatest beast of a man that ever he met in all of his life. That time in the harbor he had seen Sir John Malio at a distance and in the darkness. Now that he beheld him near by, it seemed to him that he had never looked at a more evil face in all his life. Not that the man was altogether ugly, for he had a good nose and a fine double chin, but his eyes stood out like balls and were red and watery, and he winked them continually, as though they were always smarting, and his lips were thick and purple-red and his fat red cheeks were mottled here and there with little clots of purple veins. And when he spoke his voice rattled so in his throat that it made one wish to clear one's own throat to listen to him. So what with a pair of fat white hands, and that hoarse voice, and his swollen face, and his thick lips sticking out, he seemed to Barnaby true he had never seen a countenance so distasteful to him as the one into which he then looked. But if Sir John Malio was so displeasing to our hero's taste, why, the granddaughter, even this first time he beheld her, seemed to him to be the most beautiful, lovely young lady that ever he saw. 
She had a thin, fair skin, red lips, and yellow hair, though it was then powdered pretty white for the occasion, and the bluest eyes that Barnaby beheld in all of his life, a sweet, timid creature, who seemed not to dare so much as to speak a word for herself without looking to Sir John for leave to do so, and would shrink and shudder whenever he would speak of a sudden to her, or direct a sudden glance upon her. When she did speak, it was in so low a voice that one had to bend his head to hear her, and even if she smiled would catch herself and look up as though to see if she had leave to be cheerful. As for Sir John, he sat at dinner like a pig, and gobbled and ate and drank, smacking his lips all the while, but with hardly a word to either her or Mrs. Greenfield, or to Barnaby True, but with a sour, sullen air, as though he would say, "'Your damned vittles and drink are no better than they should be, but I must eat em or nothing.' A great, bloated beast of a man. Only after dinner was over, and the young lady and the two misses sat off in a corner together, did Barnaby hear her talk with any ease. Then, to be sure, her tongue became loose, and she prattled away at a great rate, though hardly above her breath, until of a sudden her grandfather called out, in his hoarse, rattling voice, that it was time to go. Whereupon she stopped short in what she was saying, and jumped up from her chair, looking as frightened as though she had been caught in something amiss, and was to be punished for it. Barnaby True and Mr. Greenfield both went out to see the two into their coach, where Sir John's man stood holding the lantern. And who should he be, to be sure, but that same lean villain with bald head who had offered to shoot the leader of our hero's expedition out on the harbour that night? For, one of the circles of light from the lantern shining up into his face, Barnaby True knew him the moment he clapped eyes upon him. Though he could not have recognized our hero, he grinned at him in the most impudent, familiar fashion, and never so much as touched his hat either to him or to Mr. Greenfield. But as soon as his master and his young mistress had entered the coach, banged to the door and scrambled up on the seat alongside the driver, and so away without a word, but with another impudent grin, this time favoring both Barnaby and the old gentleman. Such were these two, master and man, and what Barnaby saw of them then was only confirmed by further observation, the most hateful couple he ever knew, though, God knows, what they afterwards suffered should wipe out all complaint against them. The next day Sir John Malio's belongings began to come aboard the Belle Helen, and in the afternoon that same lean, villainous manservant comes skipping across the gangplank, as nimble as a goat, with two black men behind him lugging a great sea-chest. "'What?' he cried out. "'And so you is the supercargo, is you? Why, I thought you was more account when I saw you last night a sittin' talking with his honour like his equal. Well, no matter. Tis something to have a brisk genteel young fellow for a supercargo. So come, me hearty, lend a hand, will you, and help me set his honor's cabin to rights. What a speech was this to endure from such a fellow, to be sure! And Barnaby, so high in his own esteem, and holding himself a gentleman! Well, what with his distaste for the villain, and what with such odious familiarity, you can guess into what temper so impudent an address must have cast him. You'll find the steward in yonder, he said, and he'll show you the cabin. And therewith turned and walked away with prodigious dignity, 
leaving the other standing where he was. As he entered his own cabin he could not but see, out of the tail of his eye, that the fellow was still standing where he had left him, regarding him with a most evil, malevolent countenance, so that he had the satisfaction of knowing that he had made one enemy during the voyage who was not likely to forgive or forget what he must regard as a slight put upon him. The next day Sir John Malio himself came aboard, accompanied by his granddaughter, and followed by this man, and he followed by four black men, who carried among them two trunks, not large in size, but prodigious heavy in weight, and toward which Sir John and his follower devoted the utmost solicitude and care to see that they were properly carried into the state cabin he was to occupy. Barnaby True was standing in the great cabin as they passed close by him, but though Sir John Malio looked hard at him and straight in the face, he never so much as spoke a single word, or showed by a look or sign that he knew who our hero was. At this the serving-man, who saw it all with eyes as quick as a cat's, fell to grinning and chuckling to see Barnaby in his turn so slighted. The young lady, who also saw it all, flushed up red, then in the instant of passing looked straight at our hero, and bowed and smiled at him with the most sweet and gracious affability, then the next moment recovering herself, as though mightily frightened at what she had done. The same day the Belle Helen sailed, with as beautiful, sweet weather as ever a body could wish for. End of Part 3 of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates Recording by Epistomolus, Cupertino, California, epcomm slash school